Well, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. We are finishing our consideration of this passage, this passage where Jesus not only heals a woman who's had a discharge of blood for 12 years, but also uh, this passage where Jesus raises from the dead uh, Jairus' daughter. So Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. I'd ask you to pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, and he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts uh, this evening. Well, as you recall, last week we considered the first part of this passage through the lens of that question, what is faith? I'd like for us this evening to continue our consideration of that question, what is faith, as we conclude our study of this passage. I also mentioned last week that this this term faith is a term that we use often. 
We use it in our colloquial speech, and we use it even more so in our religious communities, our churches. This is a, a term that we not only use often, but a term that we, uh, be, uh, we begin to assume the meaning of. And when we assume the meaning of, of terms, we can become less and less cognizant of what those terms actually mean. And when this happens, we naturally begin to emphasize the experience or the quality of our faith rather than the object of our faith, which is Christ. So one of the reasons why it's important for us to consider a term which may seem obvious to us, faith, one reason why it's important that we consider a term like this from Scripture is so that we recapture the proper emphasis of faith. The proper emphasis of faith is, of course, Christ and not our experience or the quality of our faith. Last week I noted three characteristics of faith that we, glean, that we can glean from this passage. We considered how this woman, this woman who had discharged of blood, how she exemplified um, a personal faith. She believed for herself that Jesus could heal her. We saw the necessity of faith to access the benefits of Christ. We saw that one of, the, one of the benefits of faith is that this woman now has peace. Peace with, with God that she belongs to a new community. Well, this week I want to point your attention to three more characteristics of faith that we see here in this passage. We'll fo be focusing primarily on Jairus and his daughter. And the three aspects of faith that I'd like to point your attention to is the confession of faith, the patience of faith, and lastly, the object of faith. So first we see the confession of faith. And what I mean here is that one of faith's first responses is to confess Jesus as Lord. Paul in Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He sees a very close connection between believing with the heart and confessing with the mouth. And so one of faith's first responses is to confess, confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. And before we move to Jairus and his daughter, I'd, I'd like to see, uh, or spend a few more moments on this woman, this woman with a discharge of blood, and consider her confession of faith. Last week, as we saw this woman who's had this discharge of blood for 12 years, she heard that Jesus is in town, has a reputation of healing the sick, the oppressed. And so this woman was able to get through this crowd, this crowd which was pressing in upon Jesus, and just touch the fringe of his garment. And immediately, she was healed. And Jesus asks Recognizes that someone touched him and asks, you know, who touched me? And he waits for everyone in the crowd to deny having touched him. And finally, at the last moment, this woman gets down on the ground before Jesus and confesses, declares in the presence of all, as we see in verse 47, why she has touched Jesus and how Jesus has immediately healed her. I'd like us to, to note the nature of her confession. This woman confesses both her problem. She says, 
She confessed why she touched Jesus. She acknowledged what her problem was, that she was a woman with an illness, a disease that no earthly doctor was able to heal her of. She had spent her whole living looking for doctors. No one could do it. She confessed her problem. This problem which had, had resulted in her being in a perpetual state of ritual uncleanness and impurity. But then she also confesses how God in Christ has healed her. Immediately. I believe these two aspects are the two aspects of every confession. An acknowledgement of our problem That we are, yes, image bearers of God, but image bearers who are fallen, fallen in sin. But also an acknowledgement of what God has done for us in Christ through the Holy Spirit. So really the two parts of, of every confession. But notice the occasion of this confession. She gets down on the ground before Jesus and confesses. Confesses Jesus as Lord confesses that healing came through Jesus alone. So we'll see here that this, this was an act of worship for this woman. This was doxological for this woman. This teaches us then that part of our worship, an element of our worship, is confessing our faith. This is why we have a part of our liturgy where we confess a creed, part of a catechism or confession, it's because part of our worship before God is confessing. Confessing who we are, what Jesus has done for us. And note further that we confess our faith, we confess the Nicene Creed this evening after the declaration of pardon. Just as this woman confessed her faith after she experienced the healing of Christ, we confess our faith after we are reminded of the healing we've received through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But we also see that this woman confesses her faith in the presence of all. Remember this crowd, this crowd which was pressing in upon Jesus? She confesses in front of this crowd. And this would have been most likely a, a terrifying experience. This woman is ritually impure and unclean, which means that she would defile anybody she comes in contact with. I'm sure this crowd was not too happy to learn that this defiled woman has just touched this Jewish teacher. But yet she confesses in front of this possibly hostile crowd that she touched Jesus. This again tells us that when we confess our faith, it's not just an act of worship to God, but it's also a confession to the world. When we confess our faith, we are acknowledging a basic antithesis between the world and the church. When we confess that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, we are rejecting the so-called gods of this world and culture. When we confess the drama of, of Scripture that we see laid out in our creeds and, and catechisms, we are rejecting the ideologies, the other narratives of our culture and world. Listen to how one author puts it. He says, as soon as the congregation says, we believe in one God, all other pretenders to the divine throne have been put well and truly in their place. Neither sex, nor money, nor power is God. There's only one God. 
the God whom the creed proceeds to describe. The recitation of a creed makes it very clear that the church as a whole looks to God as king and not some creaturely pretender. So when we confess this creed, as I already mentioned, we are being countercultural. We're bucking the trends of the spirit of our age. One thing that you see in the history of the church, when particularly when churches and denominations begin to go liberal, and start to compromise in the truth of God's word, whether it be the truth of God's law, that is, they start to call evil good and good evil, or they start to compromise on the gospel. They start to add to the finished work of Christ. One thing that you see is that whenever those churches and denominations are compromising, rejecting the truth of God's word, that is evidence that they've already lost their confession. So we are called to be a confessing church. A confessing church. And a confessing people. We can move on and, and consider the, the patience of faith. So we consider the confession of faith. Now let's consider the patience of faith. And we see this exemplified by Jairus. Now again, this passage began with Jesus returning to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And almost immediately as he steps off of this boat, he's confronted with this ruler of the synagogue. Someone who would have had considerably high social standing in that community. But in a very vulnerable display of emotion, this man throws himself upon the ground and, and asks, implores Jesus to come to his house and to save and heal his sick daughter. His daughter, who is entering the prime of her life, is on death's doorstep. This man's desperate. And Jesus agrees, and he goes with Jairus, and they're, they're making their way to his home. And that's where we encounter this woman. This woman who's touched the fringe of Jesus' garment. But again, we, we saw that Jesus, he didn't just realize, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're healed, healed woman, let's move on. He, he stops and has a somewhat lengthy interaction with this woman. He asks, who touched me? And he waits for the crowd to all deny it. And then he, he speaks and has his interaction with this woman. And imagine Jairus' emotion during this time. Jesus, do you, do you realize that my daughter may only have minutes to live? And why are you having this interaction? You already know she's been healed. Who, why do you need to know who touched you? Imagine the fear, the anxiety, even the perplexity. This Jesus whom Jairus has heard uh, to have the reputation of someone who's compassionate for the sick and the oppressed seems oblivious to what he's going through. Nonchalant about his desperate situation. And then Jesus says in verse 48, he says, Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go, go in, in peace. And we read that as he was speaking these words, a member of Jairus' household comes to Jesus and Jairus and says, No need to bother the teacher anymore. Your, da your daughter's gone. She's dead. Imagine. Imagine what Jairus would have been feeling at this point. That confusion, perplexity, and fear, I'm sure, would have gave way to anger and frustration. Jesus, you are the reason for my daughter's death. If you wouldn't have taken so long wanting to determine who touched you, 
you could have saved my daughter. He likely felt that tension between the reputation that he had heard of Jesus as this, this, this teacher with unusual authority who has compassion for the outcasts of society, who has the power to heal, and then what he's seeing before his eyes, this, this teacher who seems oblivious, ignorant of what is he's dealing with and his daughter's condition. And Jesus knew, knew that the flood of emotion that was, that was coming upon the heart of Jairus, and he says, do not fear. Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And they continue on to his house, and the mourning process has already begun. And Jesus, Jesus tells, that, tells that those who are mourning that she's just sleeping. That is to say, she's going to rise again. And they laugh at him. Are you kidding me? We saw her lifeless body. She is not coming back to life. And so Jesus enters the household with the parents and Peter, James, and John, and he proceeds to take the child's hand in his and to say, Child, arise. And immediately, this child comes to life. And Jesus brings food, has, has food be brought into her. I'd like to point your attention particularly to the patience and perseverance that we see of Jairus' faith here. I'm sure that, as I've already noted, he was questioning Jesus' judgment, questioning Jesus' plan in all this, as he was delaying, and as he was, uh, seemed to be completely oblivious to his daughter. But as Jesus said in verse 50, do not fear, only believe. We see that Jairus chose to believe the word of God, the word of Christ, even though the circumstances seemed to testify against what he had heard Jesus to be. He believed. Even though he couldn't see it with his eyes, he believed that Jesus knew what he was doing. And we see at the end that it all worked out. That his daughter rose from the dead and God received even more glory than if he had just healed her uh, while she was still alive. But so often we feel like Jairus, don't we? We feel as if God is you know, taking a nap while the chaotic storm is striking in our life. We feel as if Jesus is lollygagging, as, as our daughter is dying. We feel as if God's been taken surprise, taken by surprise by the trials, tribulations of our life. We question why he permits evil, suffering, pain into our life. And most of the time, not all the time, we don't have a resurrection story on the other side of our trials. We don't know how God specifically turned our trials into good. We are left with the ongoing difficulty that's ensued, the death of a loved one, ongoing disease, illness, pain, heartache, whatever it might be. And in these moments, our faith is tested. The trials of our life and the emotions that come, they scream at us to give way to fear, anxiety, frustration, anger. And when we're confronted uh, with such situations, we, 
we are left in, left in, a, in a, a place of tension, an apparent contradiction, similar to what Jairus would have felt before the resurrection, where we on one hand know God's promises, that he's a benevolent father who promises to work all things for the good of his church. But on the other hand, we look at our circumstances, and those circumstances seem to testify against God's promise. And we're left with this, uh, this apparent contradiction, this tension between what we see with our eyes and what we've heard uh, in our, with our ears in the word of God. And we seek to resolve this tension, this contradiction, naturally. And there's a number of ways that we can seek to resolve this, this tension. One way is to let the circumstances of our life dictate the validity and truthfulness of God's promise. We get so overwhelmed by the chaos in our life that we, we think to ourselves, there's no way that God can be in control of all things for the good of his people. How ridiculous is that? No, God must either not exist or, or he's like a divine chess player, just reacting to the chaos of this universe and the actions of human beings. Well, the other option is to believe and trust and rest in, in God's promises, no matter what we're going through, no matter what our circumstances seem to be saying to us. But even here, there is a temptation to then overanalyze, overinterpret our circumstances, to exegete God's providence, as it were, where we want to find the secret purposes of God in the details of our life. And we don't know the secret purposes of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children. We know that God is in control of all things and works it for our good, our salvation in Christ, but we don't know the specific purposes beyond that. Sort of like a child who sits down with a plate of vegetables before him or her. And as they're sitting down, they want nothing to do with the vegetables, but they have their eye on the cookie jar. Similar to us, we can grow discontent with the revelation that God has given us in his word, and we want what's not for us in this age. We want the secret plan of God, the hidden plan of God. So what should we do when we feel this contradiction, this tension? We shouldn't let the circumstances dictate the validity of God's promises. And even if we do believe and trust God's promises, we are not to over-exegete the circumstances of our life. What should we do? Well, the answer is we look to Christ. We look to the cross and resurrection of Christ more particularly. Think for a moment what the cross would have been like for the disciples. This would have been the biggest apparent contradiction. The disciples know that God has promised this, this long-awaited Messiah who's going to come like a king like David and Solomon, who is to renew the kingdom of Israel, deliver God's people from their enemies, to crush the head of the serpent. Yet Christ himself gets crushed. He's hanging on this Roman crucifix lifeless. Imagine the contradiction between God's promises and what they see before their eyes in the death of Christ. But we know that Good Friday gives way to Easter, and the resurrection proves to us that God is able to take the greatest act of injustice, the greatest act of evil, and turn it for ultimate good into the greatest gift for humanity. 
And if God is able to do that with the greatest act of evil, can he not do the same in our lives? So even though we won't know the secret purposes of God behind uh, situation X, Y, or Z, we can trust, we can trust that God is indeed in control. Furthermore, we know that this, this age is really the age of the cross. It's the age of suffering. But we know we have a certain hope as the people of God that we are looking forward to the age of resurrection, the age of exaltation. We know that Good Friday gives way to Easter. And we keep our eyes fixed upon that. And brothers and sisters, this is how we remain patient in this life. This is how we persevere in this life. Not by over-exegeting our circumstances, not by doing away with the promises of God, but keeping our eyes fixed upon how the cross gave way to the resurrection. So we are to have a patient, a patient faith. Well, lastly, and, and more briefly, I'd like us to consider the object of faith. The object of faith that we see here in this passage. I've implicitly uh, referred to this a number of occasions these last two weeks, but I'd like to just explicitly point your attention to the fact that both this woman with a discharge of blood as well as Jairus, the object of their faith was Christ. Let's dwell for a few moments on how Christ is portrayed in this passage. Look with me at verse 48. Jesus, in response to this woman's healing, says, Daughter, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman who's probably hasn't felt belonging in any community in the last 12 years is told that she belongs to an everlasting community. She's a daughter of God. In verse 50, he tells Jairus, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. Verse 52, he, he speaks. He says, do not weep. Those mourning the death of Jairus' daughter, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. We see here the heart of our Lord, the compassion of our Lord for those who are suffering. One of the great benefits that we, that we can glean from the Gospels is that we learn the heart of our Lord. And we know that the, the same heart that Jesus had towards individuals in his earthly ministry is the same heart that he has towards his people as our risen High Priest and Savior. And our Belgian Confession speaks about Jesus as, as someone who loves us more than anyone. The Confession is speaking specifically in light of the medieval church. The medieval church which had saw God as holy and because they believed that they, needed, they were justified by their intrinsic righteousness, a God was a terror. But they also began to see Jesus as a terror. And so then they would pray to the saints, they pray to Mary, they pray to St. Anne. Because they can't approach God, nor can they, they approach Jesus. And our confession, our statement of faith says, no, Jesus is the one who makes you worthy and presentable before a holy God. There's no one, there's no one who loves you more than Jesus. So do you see Jesus in this light? Do you see him as your compassionate high priest, one who loves you more than than you can even imagine. This is the object, the object of our faith. Well, I'd like to conclude our consideration of this passage by having you turn the back of your Psalter hymnals 
uh, to Lord's Day 7. I believe this is on page 875 of our Heidelberg Catechism. So Lord's Day 7. I believe it's on 875. And this Lord's Day, Lord's Day 7, is all about faith. What is true faith? What is the content of faith? And as you know, we've been considering this passage through the lens of this question of, of what is faith. And I was preparing uh, for the sermon this week, I realized that the six characteristics that we glean from this passage are all taught here in this Lord's Day that we confess. And nowhere have I read Luke chapter 8 being a, a proof text for this Lord's Day. There's many more explicit passages that speak to the nature of faith. I think what this teaches us is that these confessions that we subscribe to, that we confess, they're robust, robustly biblical. It's not just one proof text that we can go to, but they truly are the doctrine of Scripture, of the Old and New Testaments. Do you recall last week I noted how in this passage we see the necessity of faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Faith is needed to access the benefits of Christ, both for this woman and for us. Well, in question answer 20, you'll see uh, we ask, um, are all men saved in Christ if they perish in Adam? No, you need faith. Faith is what's needed to access the benefits of Christ. Question answer 21 speaks about what is true faith. And uh, last week we, we looked at how we need a personal faith. We don't just believe that Jesus is a savior for someone out there. We believe that he's a savior for you and for me. Question answer 21 says that faith is not only knowledge, it's not only assent, but it's a trust, a personal trust that not only to others, but to me also. It's personal. Last week we considered the benefits of faith. One of the benefits being peace with God. A restored relationship with God. Question answer 21, we confess that faith grants us the forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation. It deals with the debt of our sin, but it also grants us that perfect righteousness which is needed to stand before a holy God. It grants us peace with the holy God of the universe. Today we consider the confession of faith. Faith confesses Jesus as Lord. Well, question and answers 22 and 23 ask, well, what is the content of faith? What is necessary for a Christian to believe? The articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith. Well, what are those articles? The Apostles' Creed. A creed that we confess together as the church. We see the confession of faith. We also see the patience and object of faith. When we're confronted with those times where God's promises and our circumstances seem to be in, in this tension, this apparent contradiction, what do we do? Well, we look to God's word, but specifically we look to the merits of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And Christ then, of course, throughout this Lord's Day is the object, the object of our faith. This is wonderful. This is not by any means a common proof text, but we see even in this passage all the characteristics of faith that we confess together in Lord's Day 7. So I encourage you, learn your confessions, know your confessions. These truly are a great summary of the truth of the Word of God and they're, they're personal, they're encouraging, they speak to us. 
as pilgrims walking through a veil of tears. Well, brothers and sisters, beloved in the Lord, these last two weeks we've considered this question, what is faith, from these two imperfect individuals, both this woman with a discharge of blood as well as from Jairus. And if you take nothing else from these last two weeks, remember this. Remember that the efficacy of your faith does not reside in its quality, but in its object, which is Christ alone. So let us pray.